Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. The information that I am providing today is coming from higher dimensional consciousness. Things got so weird during 2020, and it wasn't just the QAnon conspiracy theorists. This New Age channel told us... Donald Trump is a massive and powerful light worker. A light worker? And then what about this Oprah-endorsed, best-selling feminist health icon talking about heavy metals? That are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G. As we continued studying what we now call conspirituality, it only got more intense. This is, this is the cult of Baphomet. This is Molochite worshipping stuff it gets very gory in the basement and it culminated with that shaman dude showing up at the capital insurrection but it didn't stop there every week on conspirituality podcast we track the overlaps between new age spirituality and far-right conspiracy cults it's august 2014 in marbella spain late night and there's little noise outside the villa of gary hutch and daniel kinahan but crickets and the sound of former boxer Jamie Moore shuffling, half drunk, up the driveway. Moore, a champion light middleweight from Salford, England, won 32 of 37 pro bouts, a down-to-earth lad, the so-called fighter's fighter. He's best known for a brutal fight against compatriot Matthew Macklin back in 2006, fight of the year in tons of magazines, a slugfest that won the hearts and minds of fans all over the world. Moore is retired, but his former opponent Macklin back then wanted him in his own corner after that epic battle and has brought him to the famed Macklin's Gym Marbella, or MGM, to coach him and other prospects for the big time. The MGM isn't just any other gym, and not just for the long strips of bars on the Costa del Sol that attract hundreds of thousands of holiday and merrymakers each year. Its equipment is top of the range, coaches among the best in the world. It does charity work and there's even an upstairs bar called Slauncha where trainers and pals can take the edge off after a tough day on the bags. At the top of the MGM tree are Hutch and Kinahan. They're two millionaire boxing fans and promoters and all-round party animals whose largesse is murky to say the least. They're often out on the town driving luxury cars and spending long nights at Slauncha and the Strip. Moore and his clique know them simply as friends. To others though, they're mortal enemies. The guys at MGM work hard and play hard, and Moore has been hitting the beach beers hard. So when he rocks up at the villa late into the night, and he sees a shadowy figure standing in front of him wearing a Frankenstein mask, the first thought in his head is that it's just another laddie joke. When he sees the pistol pointed at him, he begins to sober up a tiny bit. You know what, he says at the masked intruder, 
that's not even funny. Then bang, and Moore feels a white-hot pain in his right hip, and he falls to the ground. More bullets fly. One hits his leg. Blood is pouring out of the two wounds. Moore hears a car's ignition fire and bolts away. Moore is close to death, and he knows it. I thought I was finished, and it's the emptiest, most horrible feeling ever, Moore later tells British newspaper The Guardian. His wife Colleen is seven months pregnant with his first child, a girl. I felt helpless and lonely, he says, lying on a driveway at night bleeding to death. I thought, I can't die here. How am I going to leave my kids with no dad? Moore can't stand up. The bleeding's too strong and he could lose consciousness at any moment. Instead, he reaches for his phone, laid on the ground, and dials 911. He doesn't even know if that's the emergency number in Spain, but it works. Moore's drifting in and out, but he tells the operator to track his phone. 25 minutes later, an ambulance shows. Moore remembers looking up at the EMT. Please, he begs her, don't let me die. In the hospital, doctors operate on Moore to remove one of the bullets and stop the bleeding. It's only just missed a major artery. A few millimetres over, and Moore would be DOA. As it happens, he just survives. When I woke, I felt delirious seeing all those nurses, he says. But I was happy too. Yes, I'm alive. Some people think the attempted hit has to do with Moore's reputation in the ring, but it's not. It's got almost nothing to do with him, but it has everything to do with boxing, and beyond that, the two men at the top of the MGM's ranks, who've been blurring the lines between boxing and organised crime more than almost anybody in the sport's long history. Welcome to the Underworld Podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of the show where we show you how, and you're not going to believe this, guys, sport has got a problem with organised crime. Uh, I'm your host, Sean Williams. Uh, my podcast wife, Danny Gold, is probably on a flatbed somewhere between Dnipro and Mariupol, hitchhiking and tweeting his way across Ukraine. I think he's on some kind of European Jewish history tour. I'm not really sure. Anyway, while he's doing that, we have somebody who can tell us about an issue that, and you're not going to believe this either, is right on the news. So we're going to actually do something topical on this show for a change. Uh, Nicola Talent is an Irish journalist and author and podcaster uh, who last year wrote Clash of the Clans, which is an amazing account of Irish organised crime centering on the Hutchkinahan feud, which we got into in one of our first ever episodes like 25 years ago or however long we've been doing this. So first of all, a massive shout out to Nicola. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. So we're actually on the news, which is a, a weird feeling for us. Um, last month, Daniel Kinahan, that's the Dublin-born son of famous gangster Christy Kinahan, um, he was sanctioned by the US Treasury as a cocaine kingpin and violent criminal with a reward of up to $5 million for his capture. Kinahan since had his assets frozen in authorities in Dubai, where he's been living for years, of course. Uh, various people have come to his wedding a few years ago including Riddle and Taggy who we covered a bunch of his Mokro Mafia in the Netherlands but we're going to talk about Kinahan's association with boxing where he's been a keen fan promoter with the firm MTK going way way back uh, some of his stable includes British fighter Billy Joe Saunders and more famously of course Tyson Fury who this weekend just beat well didn't beat he destroyed Dillian White at Wembley Stadium in front of 94,000 people probably the best heavyweight in the world at the moment. So, um, yeah, this is this is happening right now. And Tyson Fury has done enough to get cancelled about a billion times over. I'd probably urge people to see what he has to say about women and various things. But 
Um, it's his connections to the mob which have been making headlines. Uh, something he says is, quote, none of my business, except they literally are his business. So, yeah, <laughs> again, welcome to the show, Nicola. And um, I wonder if you can start by telling us a bit more about MTK and, and Tyson Fury and how he's linked to this sort of uh, major drug kingpin that's been called out by the Treasury. Well, you set the scene there really in your introduction when you told the story of the shooting of Jamie Moore in Marbella and Moore was at that time staying with Daniel Kinahan in his villa. He was over uh, training in the club, which was then known as MGM Marbella. It had been set up in around 2012 by Matthew Macklin and his very good friend Daniel Kinahan. Um, And it was essentially a bit of a nirvana for boxers, the club. A lot of, uh, you know, boxers weren't being signed up. A lot of them weren't going to maybe make a professional career out of it and found themselves in the sights of MGM and, and being brought over to Spain, being put up in these beautiful villas and getting the top training and diets and everything you need. Um, the shooting of Jamie Moore really starts the story for the public. Um, the rise of the Kinahan Mafia had been going on for a long time. But that really, that shooting in, in 2014 really sort of should have alerted boxing to <laughs> what was going on behind the scenes. Now, that's a long time ago, isn't it? But um, And here we are today only talking about it. So Jamie Moore returned to England after that shooting. MGM, the club he was working in, continued. And a year later, there was a shooting of the aforementioned Gary Hutch, who had been not so much involved in boxing, I think more a boxing fan. He would have maybe trained at that gym, but he was the kind of the criminal business partner of Daniel Kinahan. Um, there had been an enormous uh, growth of the Kinahan Mafia since they left Ireland around the turn of the century. They had started out as street dealers here in Dublin. Um, Daniel Kinahan's father, Christy Kinahan Sr., known as the Dapper Don, a convicted heroin trafficker in Ireland had sort of left prison here, gone out to Europe and set himself up as a major wholesaler with dreams of becoming the first Irish mafia down in the Costa del Sol, dreams that would come true. Um, and they had been out there growing, growing, growing. By 2010, there was a Europol operation against them called Operation Shovel. And the Spanish led that. The UK police were involved, the Irish there was a load of uh, house raids between Ireland, the UK and Spain. There was a load, 20 odd people were arrested, brought before the courts. The Spanish police came out and in a press conference said they had shut down the Irish mafia. They had uh, been had them under surveillance for a number of years. They reckoned that they were worth 100 million at that stage. And they said they were very highly skilled and trained in counter surveillance. They named Daniel Kinahan, his brother, Christy Jr. and his father, Christy Sr. as being basically the kingpins of the operation. But the Spanish legal system is slow, arduous. I don't think it's probably fit for purpose for organised crime. And, uh, you know, differently to other territories in Spain, the police investigate, and in this case over two years, they then hand their entire investigations files to a magistrate and a magistrate then reinvestigates it from the beginning. So it can often take up to four years before it comes to court or to fruition. And in the case of the Kinahans, they had very powerful lawyers. They got themselves bail and they got out. And sure enough, their uh, their business was back up and running. And 
sort of alongside that was Daniel Kinahan's dreams for creating this boxing, uh, you know, nirvana, a place where he was to become the main boxing broker in the world and where he was to have a stable of of these very famous athletes under him. So after Moore's shooting and following on from that a year later, when Gary Hutch was shot dead, uh, there was serious problems on the criminal side of the business. Uh, it culminated in an attempt on the life of Daniel Kinahan here in Dublin in 2016 at the Regency Hotel, where there was a boxing weigh-in. And it was a big homecoming for MGM at the time. They were to have a big extravaganza, boxing extravaganza in the National Stadium. It was the day before that was due to happen. And this very dramatic sort of terrorism style attack on him with a gang that came into that way in with Kalashnikov weapons and uh, he survived. But his friend David Byrne died. Um, That moment really was certainly for the Irish police a moment when they realised the threat of narco-terrorism as opposed to just drug gangs. This was a very public event where there was members of, you know, there was kids, there was all sorts of civilians milling around. It was a hotel. It was very, very dangerous incident that occurred. And it resulted in a big crackdown from a criminal point of view on the Kinahan mob and on their rivals in the Hutch mob. They'd once all been together. They'd fallen out, jealousies, you know, allegations of money being owed and various other things. But um, that crackdown started and the culmination of that has been these sanctions, which uh, were announced in the last couple of weeks here in Dublin, the US sanctions on them, a very dramatic move. Um, But all the while, Kinahan has managed to continue his rise in the sport of boxing and he has denied every accusation put to him he has uh, managed to create a kind of a an army really around him of boxers who've supported him throughout and very high ranking uh, promoters, including Bob Arum in the US, probably the most famous promoter of all, has over the years come out and said, there's nothing to see here. Daniel Kinahan's a really good guy. Yeah, <laughs> he's not, though, is he? <laughs> and uh, well, no, I mean, in your book, which is which is fantastic. I really, really enjoyed reading it. You go into I mean, it's not going to surprise anyone that boxing and the mob have been tied up for a long, long time. Uh, you go you've got stuff going back to murder, Inc. and the Lucchese's in New York. And um, I found a few interesting things online. I mean, there's a guy that wrote the arc of boxing that said that uh, quote, the mob's influence was pervasive during the 1950s, primarily because they controlled the International Boxing Club, which is the sport's major promotional outfit. And since the IBC controlled televised boxing, that gave the mobsters even more power. So, you know, the the, the very authorities that have been administrating the sport back in the 40s and 50s were very, very deeply tied up with, with the Italian crime families. Um, and that's kind of gone through. Could you tell us a bit more about kind of Sammy the Bull and, and the 90s and what came out during those times about boxing as well. Yeah, there's actually very interesting testimony online. Sammy the Bull or the Rat, as they called him. Fellow um, podcaster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I went to get in touch with him to see would he come on. But um, he um, gave testimony to the to the US Senate and he spoke in great detail about what the plans were and why the mob were interested in boxing. And really, he sort of spelled out how it was seen as a a place to launder money. You know, they were buying up gyms. They were 
fixing fights in those days. I don't know a massive amount about boxing, to be honest with you. My knowledge of boxing comes tragically from my uh, job working around organised crime. So, you know, things haven't changed so much. But certainly, um, you know, he spoke about a lot of things that would have echoed uh, to the last few years what's been happening in boxing um, are certainly is suspected of being happening. And the US sanctions have confirmed that really because not only have individuals been sanctioned, but promotional companies in the US have been sanctioned as well that are, you know, Daniel Kinahan is behind. And um, look, there's obviously a lot of money washing around in sport. Boxing has traditionally sort of engaged this whiff of sulphur But I do think that when we're reaching back to examples from the 1940s and 50s, you know, surely things should have changed. We're living in the modern world now. Um, You know, you'd like to think that with the advent of social media and, and the Internet, that people can be more aware of what's going on. They can inform themselves a little bit easier than back then, back in those days. Um, You know, secrets aren't so easy to keep now. And. In actual fact, what's happened now in modern times in boxing has been, you know, synonymous with that childhood story of the emperor's new clothes because everybody has realised who Daniel Kinahan is. They've just decided to just blindly ignore it. And it's only really now that the sanctions have come in and the finances are threatened that boxing boxers and promoters are running for cover and they're claiming they had nothing to do with him. They didn't know what he was involved in and they're cutting off all ties. But it interests me to see that because at no point did anybody, it seems to me, take a moral stand and say, do you know what? We don't want drug dealers involved in a sport. We don't want drug dealers involved in boxing. The way it is here in Ireland, and I think it's the same in a lot of other countries across the world, boxing tends to be a very working class sport. It's a way for kids from less advantaged communities, maybe to get involved in something, to feel part of something, to be good at something. Exercise, etc. is very good for everybody. And I think the idea to have drug dealers and predators, as I would call them, which is what drug dealers are, tangled up in that place, which should be a safe place for kids, maybe not coming from some of them from, you know, very secure, stable families and maybe going into that sport, looking for mentors, looking for people that can guide them through the difficult years of childhood and into the teenage years and onwards to life to kind of a a good life, you know, to pick a life that isn't going to be tangled up with guns and drugs and greed. And uh, for me, I think that was the sad part of this latest scenario with boxing that, you know, there weren't strong enough characters there to say, no, we don't want this for our sport. Yeah, I mean... It's it's interesting that even after like a, an episode of narco terror in the heart of Ireland, that this this cartel Kinahan at least was was able to sort of continue his rise within the sport. I actually wanted to take you back a little bit first because I'm interested in how you first got onto this kind of Kinahan beat, um, how you sort of first started working on this. I mean, unbelievably huge organized criminal outfit, um, which is unprecedented in Ireland and and is one of the biggest sort of cocaine cartels in Europe, if not the world. So how did that all kick off? Mm. Well, 
Largely because I, I have been working as a crime journalist for nearly 30 years now. And if you're working as a crime journalist in Ireland, you can't really ignore the Kinahan mob because, as I said, they did start here as, as street dealers. And that's what's quite extraordinary. You know, in 2010, the Spanish tell us they're worth 100 million and they've shut them down. 2022, the US tell, tell us they're worth a billion and they're still going. Um, and really, when they started off in Dublin in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, they were selling deals of coke. Um, you know, I don't think Daniel Kinahan was ever very hands on. I think he he was born slightly with a silver spoon in his mouth because of his father being so prolific in the drug scene. To bring you back to, I suppose, the 1980s in Dublin in Ireland, we had a heroin epidemic here. There was quite a, 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 a big recession. Um, there had been certain planning decisions made prior, prior, prior to that where a lot of kind of more underprivileged people would have been living in tenement houses in Dublin, which were totally unfit for purpose, and large uh, housing estates and flat complexes had been built very quickly in order to house them and get them out of those dangerous homes. But they hadn't put up the structures around them. They hadn't put in the proper, you know, schooling and the pop- proper social structures. And like vast uh, amounts of people unemployed with no prospects were all housed together in what basically became ghettos. It was depressing times. And uh, at the same time, heroin was arriving in Europe and it was coming in cheap and there was a particular individual called Larry Dunn, who would have been the first godfather of crime here in Dublin, who saw an opportunity and he started to buy that heroin and pump it into those working class estates. And it caught on like never before. Heroin always sort of, in my view, people who take heroin uh, maybe do it to kind of, they're in pain in some way. There's some trauma there. Um, I remember speaking to a drug counsellor one time a long time ago and he said, you know, he'd been years and years, decades in, in it. And he said he didn't think he'd ever met a heroin addict who hadn't got some trauma in their background. And a lot of that was coming from, you know, alcoholism, long term unemployment, all that sort of stuff. So heroin gripped Dublin um, and Larry Dunn was making a fortune and he bought a big house up in the Dublin Hills. He had a chauffeur driven limousine. He lived it up. We didn't have the Criminal Assets Bureau at that stage, which is the the assets recovery agency, which goes after anybody that spends money and shouldn't have it. Um, And, you know, he became a real kind of character, but he was very fond of his own supply and that would ultimately undo him. He was also sort of bit paranoid and used to mind his supply in his house, which when the ah. place was raided and yeah, yeah, not not the cleverest, <laughs> shall we say. Not, that's not, yeah, that's not plan A. But he, he'd made millions at the same time by the time he was caught. But there was a, Christy Kinahan was in the background. He was, he was eyeing up the money that could be made. Kinahan was a bit of a cuckoo in the nest when it comes to gangland. He was a middle class guy from a very privileged upbringing. He was educated. He had choices in life. He was very, very intelligent. He was very good at sport. He was pretty good at anything he put his hands to. If he had gone into legitimate business, he could have been an Elon Musk or whether you call him (laughs) somebody that we should, you know, there's there's debate out there about him at the moment with Twitter. But (laughs) nonetheless, I I think Kinahan could have been a big, massive, big, successful businessman in legitimate business. But he chose instead crime. And he 
when Larry Dunn was put away, Larry Dunn very famously here made a comment as he was as he was being brought off to jail. If you think we're bad, you should see what's coming after us. And he was quite prolific for a guy who, uh, you know, wouldn't have had much smarts, really. But that was an incredible statement. And he was right. And coming up behind him, watching his demise and stepping into his vacuum was Christy Kinahan Sr. Um, he, the first time he's caught in Dublin with supply in his own home, which he wouldn't do again, is with a very significant player from the European drug market, a guy from Lebanon who's a kind of a big wholesaler in Amsterdam. So it's like as if Kinahan sort of jumped up the ranks. He didn't start, he wasn't standing on any street corner. Mm. He was he was cutting out the middleman and he was buying himself directly from Europe. He went into jail. He uh, told a judge that he was a, had a problem with addiction and wanted to get an education. And courtesy of the Irish taxpayer, he did. He got a degree and he studied um, languages. He studied renewable energy back then, <laughs> you know. That was before everybody would be jumping to realise that this was a, you know, an industry of the future. And he actually, when he was due for release, he wasn't finished his degree. So he asked if he could just stay in to to get his qualification, Mm. which he was allowed to do. When he left prison, he went straight to Europe and there he is developing a massive conglomerate, really. He's beginning to do that. Um, So he is really, really significant in the whole story. And I think without him, it wouldn't have become the enormous trans-global uh, business empire that it is. His sons, Daniel Kinahan and Christy Jr., who was also sanctioned, they kind of come in when they're in their very early 20s and they start taking control. But Daniel would have been seen as, you know, there's a lot of jealousies around him, actually, and you always have to be aware of that when people are giving information about him because he was the son of, you know, the boss. Mm. And he didn't have to claw his way up. He didn't have to fight his way up. He didn't have to take up a gun and shoot somebody to prove himself. He just got the top job (laughs) because of his second name. Um, And I think that's always stayed with him. And perhaps that was part of the jealousies that saw the gang implode under his leadership in in, uh, between 2014 and 16. Yeah, I think the Elon Musk comparison is holding up throughout all this, actually. <laughs> um, so, so 2016, this kind of huge attacks happened. How does how do things pan out after that? And how does MGM continue to be such a sort of um, you know headquarters for, for for boxing on the continent? I mean, how were people not picking up on it by then? <clears throat> well, I mean, certainly after the murder that day of Daniel, or sorry, of Daniel Kinahan's friend, David Byrne, mm. um, like anybody working in crime here in Ireland, be they in law enforcement or in journalism or whatever, knew that this was going to be horrendous. Uh, to go for the head of the snake and miss in any sort of an organised crime arena um, his rivals had gone to take him out and they had missed him. And he needed to show that he had his control back and his power back. And in doing so, there was just this wave of bloodshed unleashed in Dublin. It was very dark times, actually. 
Within three days of the attack at the Regency Hotel, the city was in lockdown. It was literally, there was a ring of steel around the north inner city where his rivals would have been based. The rivals and their families because it was a community. And bear in mind, because these guys had worked together for years and fallen out, it was a highly dangerous situation because they knew everything about one another. They knew where they lived. They knew who their parents were. They knew who their enemies were. They knew what their weaknesses were. Um, so it kind of made it a very volatile situation. But within three days of that attack, um, a hit team had gone through a Garda ring of steel, had gone right into the centre of that territory in the north inner city where the rivals lived and had shot dead. Um, Eddie Hutch was the, the chap's name. He was a, a, a relative of the man that was blamed on going for Kinahan and missing. And they got away. And that was really a sign of what was to come. And over the next certainly six months, there was murder after murder after murder in the city centre. And I was, my offices are based actually not too far from that area of the north inner city. And there was certainly weeks in which we would often hear the Garda helicopter overhead and we'd go out onto the balconies and it was either a assassination attempt or it was an assassination and it could have been a Tuesday morning. It could have been a Friday afternoon on your way home from work. The city could have been shut down again. It was horrendous and it was a show of strength. And as a kind of warfare, what the Kinahan mob did was they not only um, sent in their hitmen and their hit teams to kill, uh, but they also put neighbours and members of the community on retainers that were living around their rivals. And they divided and destroyed that community, which was always sort of impoverished, I suppose, a little bit chancery. There was always a lot of individuals in the area that were kind of, you know, it would, they would have come up stealing from the docks and selling mattresses or whatever that came off the, the, the freight uh, containers that they might have nicked. But it was always a community nonetheless. And there was always people there and the women in particular of the community would have always taken somebody in if they were hard on their luck. And um, they stuck together, the North Inner City. But the blood money that was pumped into the community has destroyed it forever because I suppose you'd have had a lot of people there maybe with addiction problems, maybe people who owed the Kinahan crew money, maybe people who were just frightened of them. And they were telling on their neighbours every time they went out, every time they moved. And as I say, there was all these murders. This evidence would later come out in court about how, you know, safe houses were used or spotter houses were used. And they were previously, um, you know, had grown up with the victims and had been school friends of them, but they had turned to the Kinahan side and it was bad. And it was also, again, that word narco-terrorism was being used a lot. Um, the threat of organised crime was previously watered down as such in Ireland in 1996 when the journalist Veronica Guerin was killed and the full powers of the state came against the criminal gang that had directed her murder. The Criminal Assets Bureau had been set up and, you know, we were keeping a lid on it as such. Nobody mm. can control organised crime, but there was certainly a lid being kept on it. And this was... Uh, a realisation that these guys felt untouchable and in a way they were because 
they had migrated from these shores a long time. They had first migrated to Spain, as I say, and after about 2016, after this crackdown started um, on them in Ireland, they migrated again to the United Arab Emirates. They left Spain for good and never returned. MGM continued operating. Um, many other boxers were signed, including ex-Irish and English Olympians. Um, the company carried on regardless. In September of 2016, the Regency shooting happened in the February. Uh, the police, the Guarda Civil, along with their Irish counterparts, raided the gym and they arrested a guy called James Quinn, who was subsequently tried and convicted of the murder of Gary Hutch, who was killed in the 2015 yeah. and really whose murder was the reason they went for Kinahan in, in the Regency. Um, but the gym was raided and the gym continued going. I, I found that that was the start of my sort of jaw dropping with yeah. it. That uh, why is nobody saying anything here? Surely this raid, uh, you know, is something that is significant to boxing. But no, it was ignored. Um, the gym and its intellectual rights moved to, to Dubai around the same time Daniel Kinahan did in about 2017 there was an announcement that MGM had been sold. Now, at some point just before that, there had been some legal challenge by MGM in Vegas about the name and there had been a settlement and they had changed the name to MTK. But we were told outright Kinahan and Macklin had sold up. They'd sold to a woman called Sandra Vaughan. Um, she was the new owner. They would nothing to do with it. It had literally, the decks had been cleared. Uh, but if you're a crime journalist, Sandra Vaughan wasn't that unfamiliar and um, she had mingled around the sidelines with them before. And the idea that it was now based in Dubai and was a neighbour of Daniel Kinahan was sort of a little bit questionable as well. It's the third act of any respected uh, gangster that you, you wind up in Dubai and then uh, you get a villa on the beach and then eventually the, tre the US Treasury is the one who puts out a PR about you and then that's when things start to fall apart, perhaps. Um, but you, I mean, when you've spoken to people in the sport about these links that you've been covering for years and years going back, um, what's the reaction? Do you, do, you, do you get stonewalled? Do people actually kind of admit that there's, a, there's this sort of very strong link with, with cocaine importation across Europe? Very few people in the sport have been speaking about it at all. And uh, like... The boxing journalists have been on a different trajectory. I can slightly understand them because um, MTK has become a very powerful force in boxing. But I think, you know, it's been funny. I work for a newspaper called The Sunday World in Dublin, which is a very much a, a tabloid newspaper full of crime in the front pages and sport in the back. And often over the years, you know, we'd have a story about Macklin and the mob or, you know, how you know, the Kinahan crime group were traveling to the States en masse to support Macklin. And in the back, they'd have the story about who Macklin was going to KO and no mention of the mob. And <laughs> that's the way it went. Um, I think the sports journalists, the boxing journalists were very much, you know, under no illusion that if they started moving into this territory, they were going to be banned. And they were. Mm. MTK issued a ban um, on the Irish media for a year. From 2017, I think Sandra Vaughan, one of our first 
roles she took as as CEO of the company was to come out. Um, she had a pink silk pussy bow blouse on her and her hair up and glasses on her, I recall. Um, and she did an interview with IFL TV, which was sponsored by MTK. And she told them that the Irish media were basically very pesky, very annoying, wouldn't stop mentioning Daniel Kinahan, and therefore they were being banned. Now, that didn't bother me or any of my crime journalist comrades because we didn't really need to speak to boxers to know, or nor did we need to attend boxing bouts. But the Irish boxing media were banned. They weren't allowed to interview anybody that was signed to MTK. And... Bear in mind, most of the biggest boxers this side of the world were were with them at that stage. So they were very proactive in trying to shut down the media and trying to gag it. And that actually comes all the way from the top, from Christy Kinahan Sr. In recent weeks, I have been privy to some social media he has been on in recent years while moonlighting as an aviation broker in Dubai. <laughs> and he... um. He called himself Christopher Vincent, by the way. He just cut off Kinahan and uh, just carried on regardless. But he um, had all these social media postings and musings about Russia and Putin. He quite likes Putin, actually. And uh, he thinks the the, yeah, he thinks the Russians are a little bit misunderstood. Um, He's anti-vac and he is one of these conspiracy theorists, anti-mainstream media. You know, any opportunity he gets, he's anti-mainstream media. And that has filtered down, I think, probably to Daniel and then onwards. Um, I think MTK thought they could just control the narrative in, you know, banning journalists from their Mm. fights. Therefore, people were going to have to start being nice about them. Um, You know, in recent years, I don't know whether you realise this or not, but it was last year, I think, um, or it was maybe around the time of the Panorama documentary, the BBC documentary, because that came out and that really put the focus on um, the influence of organised crime in boxing. Um, but after that, there was a lot of uh, pro-Kinahan uh, propaganda, really, from some of the boxers and stuff. But mm. Billy Joe Saunders, who's an English boxer and who was uh, signed up, he contacted me on direct me direct messages and he was sort of chatting away about, you know, why are you so bitter or something? And uh, then he asked me, did I want to do an interview with Daniel Kinahan? And he said that I could come to Dubai and it was Valentine's Day was coming up. So maybe we could go on a bit of a date, me and Daniel, and have a little chat oh, over dinner and lovely. Yeah. And that I'd find him a really nice guy and stuff. So I just was replied business like that. I said, look, I said, I'm prepared to do a podcast with him. We can record at both ends so nobody can be accused of being unfair. Mm. Because, you know, if if I was going to write a piece, I could do an interview and I could take and lose what I wanted out of it. So in the interest of fairness, I suggested this. So he came back to me and he said he could arrange it if I wrote something positive about Daniel Kinahan first. And that, you know, that is, that was obviously a strategy that they thought was going to work. And, you know, it's an extraordinary thing to think that a crime gang can believe that they can, you know, that they can direct the media. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The same media that they're sort of admonishing all the time for, 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 
presumably lying about everything under the sun. (laughs) But, you know, in a way, like they did and boxing backed them, really, because um, I think the boxing correspondents have been, you know, to do that job, you need to be able to have your contacts within boxing and you need to be the one who's given the interview and et cetera, et cetera. And you need to be ringside to report well on any of these things. And I think that they did pick and choose who they allowed to do that. And their supporters were brought closer and maybe given the bigger stories and, and anybody who complained against them. So the, in a way they did. Um, Putin style tactics, shall we say. Um, they did try to shut down, you know, not being funny about it, but they did try to mm. control the media. And, um, you know, and then in a way that worked for them because they were able to lean on the positive stories and show them and kind of point to them as reasons why they were okay. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, first, (laughs) I guess he's got a a future maybe in Chechen boxing or MMA. Well, MTK have folded in the last few days. They have announced that they've closed down. Um, they lasted, I think, 10 days after the sanctions or certainly a week. Um, the US Treasury came in with these sanctions. I mean, you couldn't have anything more powerful to happen. It's been an incredible piece of behind the scenes policing, really, because this wasn't just a quick PR exercise by law enforcement to get themselves out there and to get named and be on television. This was a very long drawn out plan to deconstruct a transglobal mafia. And, you know, it is in a way it's not the end. It's the beginning of the end, I think I'd say. Um, But what the plan was, so they could have brought in Kinahan or attempted to and his father and his brother and jailed them. But the show would have gone on in the background. I think what they've actually done is they have created a new blueprint for policing globally. And that is cooperation, intelligence sharing and using what each country has to fight against organised crime. Um, So the sanctions will ultimately strangle the, you know, they will cut off their oxygen, which is their finances. Um, The power of the US forced the UAE to freeze their assets. That happened within a week and Mm. um, obviously showed that the UAE weren't just friends anymore, that they were going to politically move with the US as opposed to protect a gang of criminals. So the Kinahans would always have escape routes planned. My information is they'd be heading deeper into Oman. Um, They will have a lot of investments all over the world. It's not like they have nothing, you know, If you and I, if you and I have nothing, we mightn't be able to pay our mortgage or the electricity bill. Uh, their nothing is a very different figure <laughs> in the bank account. But they have a lot of investments in West Africa, you know, in you know, in China, in Russia, etc. So they will have squirreled away. Certainly, they're running away money, and they will have cash reserves to to last them. But where do they go? Like, it isn't an there isn't an infinite amount of places willing to take them in. Mm. They've been trying to make ties with Pakistan. Um, There was talk that they were, you know, they could go to Afghanistan. I mean, the name of God, these guys live, live it up. You know, they live it up. And I can tell you, Afghanistan wouldn't be a place 
uh, for them to live. But nonetheless, they will they will try to keep on the move. Um, For a long time, they were untouchable. They were so powerful. Um, And the day the sanctions were announced, it struck me that they had become the hunted. And that's where they will remain in that place until they are eventually brought to justice. I was going to say, I mean, have you faced any, it seems like they're being a bit cuter than to sort of outright threaten you, but have you faced any sort of, you know, worrying or fearful moments following this group around? I mean, your book is about as forensic a look at their history and their operations as you get. So I'd be surprised if they weren't knocking on your door every now and then. Well, look, they know exactly who I am and, you know, I'm a pest to them along with all the other crime journalists, but they don't, the kind of the top tier don't exist in this country and they haven't come back here since 2016. So there's that. In 2016, I did receive quite a serious threat from the ranks of that organisation. I was issued with a guard information message that there was a credible threat to my life and that had to be handled. Um, It's sort of like most of these things abated 2016 and after the Regency was a very volatile time and there was a lot of people under threat. But I'd always say that as journalists, as crime journalists, we have a job to do and we're not victims of crime. You know, if anything does come to our door, we're part of massive big media conglomerates. My own company, Media House, is a huge big European company. They have dealt with threats to their journalists in many different territories, including the Netherlands. I mean, here in Ireland, definitely, and in other European countries, if there is a threat at all to a journalist, you're surrounded by the powers of the state, by the powers of the Garda Síochána, the police, your own corporate entities. It's not the same. It's 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 what it is, and it usually blows over. It's a it's a blast of nearly publicity. Um, I don't like giving oxygen to it, but I think really it gives you a little bit of an understanding what it's like for people who are actually, you know, being threatened and understanding Mm. without that backup, if you understand me, uh, just how much, how destructive it can be on your life more than anything. But most people who are threatened by the Kinnahans and their cohorts have no backup like that whatsoever. And I'm sure they're absolutely terrified. And it's not just a threat because the reality of what they can do has played out before us 18, 20 times over in this city in a very short period of time. Um, You know, in many cases, they went for the loved ones of those they were after. They went for people who were friends of their targets. In a way, their warfare has been so dirty in gangland terms that it has broken all those old rules. They have crossed a line in the sand and that's a case of everybody is fair game. And if they can't get the individual they want, they'll go for their loved ones around them. Mm. Um, that's that's a new wave of, of violence within the underworld, for sure. And, and I, I guess just finally, is there anything in the sport of boxing that's suggested to you that things are going to change? I mean, 94,000 people, people came to London on, I think it was Saturday night, to see... Tyson Fury fight despite all the noise before the fight being about his connections to Daniel Kinahan so you know they haven't voted with their feet um the sport going back has done very little I guess to to try and um 
mend or to to try and refute its connections to organized crime so i don't know are there any noises coming out of your work that you've seen that that suggests things might change i think that kinahan's are now toxic in boxing there's no question of it and you can see everybody running for the hills and claiming that they weren't really that friendly after all with them um i think their involvement in boxing has ended and i think that the reverberations of what has happened are going to be felt for a long time. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of money taken out of boxing in the UK with the fall of MTK in particular. And, you know, with Kinahan, you're going to see, it's going to take a while. It's like with the sanctions with the Kinahans. This isn't just the end and this isn't how it's going to pan out. You know, you'll see over the next couple of months what's going to happen. And, um, you know, we might see what kind of money was being pumped into boxing from organized crime when you see it, when you see it not being there anymore. Um, I think that it's just, it's going to take a long time to untangle. To me, it's like boxing and the Kinahan organization. It's like if you put your Christmas tree lights away in a bit of a haste and you take them out at the beginning of December and you go, what did I do here? And it's just a <laughs> knot that you sit down on the couch and it takes you a long, long time to untangle it all. To me, that's what it's like. And, um, you know, we really can't see what's going to happen in the geography of boxing immediately. Mm. It'll just take a little while to, to, to sort of for the, the dust to settle. Cool. Well, yeah, in the meantime, people should definitely read your book and, and understand more about this whole world because it's, it's pretty crazy. And some of the, some of the kind of run-ins and, and things that you've seen over the course of the last few years following these guys is, uh, is worth the read alone. I found it, it's, it's really exciting and kind of a, uh, yeah, real thriller. Um, and you've also got a podcast, so tell us a bit more about that, Nicola, as well, um, before I let you carry on with your, your work. Yeah. I'll have one to do, I'm sure, today. Yeah, the podcast is called Crime World and it sort of dips into all sorts of aspects of crime. Um, like everything, the Kinahans feature heavily because mm. they just don't go away, do they? But um, yeah, I sort of do interviews with people and sometimes I do long reads, you know, of stories that are, are worthwhile and a bit of everything. Um it's doing very well, actually. It just shows how the crime genre is so popular. Um, you know, I think people are interested in it, getting a bit of intimacy f- about crime. You know, they crime can be for years like I, I reported largely in the newspapers and, you know, I would have done broadcasting and, and TV stuff. But you always have to remain very, very serious and, and you come across as if you're extremely serious person. I like the podcasting because it allows you to give a little bit of yourself and a little yeah. bit of personal anecdotes or whatever and that makes it more interesting for the listener i think yeah i you know i i can only be so uh unprofessional before i have to just try and have a laugh otherwise it just yes. sounds like a complete incompetence but yeah <laughs> i know what you mean um well everyone should go out and buy your book uh try and get it from somewhere other than amazon because amazon sucks but it's everywhere um <laughs> and yeah nicola thanks ever so much for joining us it's really interesting insight into something that's I guess going to develop over the coming days and weeks, right? Absolutely. Okay, thank you, Sean. Cheers. 